0: No one's a better counterpuncher than Donald Trump, and if you come at him, he will destroy you.
1: Republican presidential candidates are struggling to figure out how to take on the GOP frontrunner. For Saturday, June 17th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid, coming up, a deep dive into the neuroscience of kids and their screen time.
2: We cannot get rid of all of our habits. We can just seek to build habits that are a little bit healthier than other habits. Plus,
1: ahead of Father's Day, we look at the many different ways to be a dad. And later, a national movement by conservatives to dismantle a tool that fights voter fraud, the Electronic Registration Information Center.
0: Wild ideas about conspiracies of you know, data leaking out the back door and secret funding sources.
2: But first, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Hurst. President Biden kicked off his first re-election campaign rally in Philadelphia. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports he spoke after receiving endorsements from top labor unions.
3: Hundreds of union workers welcomed President Biden to Philadelphia, where he painted himself as the most pro-union president in American history.
4: Hello, Philadelphia! Hello, organized labor!
3: Biden touted his administration's work on climate and infrastructure. He outlined some of his efforts to lower health care costs.
4: I told you when I ran for president, I'd have your back. And I have. But you've had my back as well.
3: The AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Teachers, and several other labor unions endorsed Biden's campaign on Friday. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News.
2: Saudi Arabia's foreign minister traveled to Iran and handed the Iranian president an invitation from King Salman to visit. Empire's Aya reports the visit marks another step toward rebuilding ties following years of rivalry.
5: Prince Faisal bin Farhan's trip to Iran is the highest level visit by a Saudi official to Tehran since the two countries agreed to restore ties in a deal brokered by China earlier this year. Despite strides in that direction and Iran reopening its embassy in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom has yet to do the same. Saudi Arabia remains concerned about Iran's nuclear enrichment, its drones and missiles, and its backing of militias in the region. Prince Faisal told reporters in Tehran his talks in Iran were frank and clear. This month, Gulf Arab countries and the U.S. also said they were determined to counter aggressive threats to shipping lanes, an apparent reference to recent Iranian actions in the Persian Gulf. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. Two recent surveys
2: shows people are a little less nervous about inflation over the coming year than they had been. And Pierre Scott Horsley reports it may reflect price changes at the grocery store and the gas station.
0: The surveys by the University of Michigan and the New York Federal Reserve Bank both found people lowering their forecast of what inflation will be a year from now. The estimates in both cases are now the lowest they've been since the spring of 2021, when consumer prices in the U.S. were just beginning to take off. Economists at Wells Fargo suggest people's improving outlook may be the result of recent savings at the supermarket. Grocery prices were down in March and April and up only slightly in May. Like gasoline prices, supermarket inflation carries out size, weight, and how people feel about the economy. Food and energy prices are famously volatile, though. So-called core inflation, which excludes those elements, has shown less improvement in recent months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
2: And you're listening to NPR
6: News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Loved ones of people who donated their bodies to Harvard Medical School say they're in grief over allegations that the morgue manager sold off body parts. Some are joining a class action lawsuit. Cedric Lodge, his wife, and several others are facing federal charges in part of what prosecutors call a nationwide network of body parts trafficking. WBUR's Allie Germanning spoke with some of the families.
5: Laura St. Georgie says this week's news has reignited her grief for her mother, who died six years ago at age 87. She's angry at the people
7: accused of these crimes and at Harvard Medical School. We trusted them.
4: And I know that this kind of thing is not something that anybody would anticipate, because why on earth would you? But it's just, it's just so
6: horrifying.
5: Harvard officials and federal prosecutors say they're working to determine those who may have been affected by the alleged thefts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmaning.
6: Philanthropist Mackenzie Scott is donating $2 million to a Boston nonprofit, one that works to make early education and child care accessible and affordable for families. Neighborhood Village's co-founder Lauren Kennedy says the massive gift will help her organization close the gap in early child care.
3: It's a foundational investment
8: in in helping Neighborhood Village's really reach this next level of work where a systems change organization and our model is to scale with government in order to fix early education and care.
6: Massachusetts is ranked one of the most expensive for early child care. Mark your calendars. August 12th and 13th will be the state's tax-free holiday weekend. The Massachusetts House and Senate both approved the date last week. This most items under $2,500 will not be taxed by the state. Red Sox play the Yankees at Fenway tonight. Also tonight, the Revolution host Orlando City at Gillette. Showers tonight with a low near 60, a chance of afternoon showers tomorrow, mostly cloudy, low 70s, and Monday, partly sunny, a slight chance of afternoon showers, near 70, 63 degrees in Boston. We are
8: funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma
1: Khalid. Most leaders of the Republican Party have rallied around former President Donald Trump after he was charged with crimes related to the mishandling of national secrets. But some of Trump's rivals for the Republican nomination for president have taken veiled jabs at the frontrunner.
4: If these materials had ever inadvertently made their way in the hands, of foreign interests, it would jeopardize the security of our country.
1: That voice was former Vice President Mike Pence speaking with the Wall Street Journal editorial board. His comments were not a direct rebuke, but they were a sign of a new openness to criticizing Trump and a sign of how difficult it is to do that. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more.
3: Tim Scott was one of the first who nodded to Trump's indictment during a campaign stop in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He wasn't the only one. This case
4: is a serious case with serious allegations.
2: If in America, this indictment is true, if what it says is actually the case, President Trump was incredibly reckless
4: with our. I National think this Security. is a time where, as Americans, we ought to hew to our roots, to our commitment to the rule of law. I also that was Scott Nikki Haley on Fox News
3: and Mike Pence on CNBC, as part of a media tour where he raised concerns. It's a clear example of the balancing act Republicans are trying to walk, suggesting Trump did something wrong, and at the same time echoing Trump's complaints of a weaponized Justice Department that targets conservatives.
0: It's a recognition that the field is getting serious.
3: That's Alex Conant. He's a Republican strategist who helped lead Senator Marco Rubio's presidential campaign in 2016. While the primaries are not until next year, Conant says we're now in the middle of the so-called invisible primaries which is all about fundraising, building staff, and appealing to base voters. And he says rivals can't make the same mistake they did seven years ago and wait too long to confront Trump.
0: I think the candidates have learned the lessons of 2016, which is that Trump is not going to beat himself. You can't just leave Trump alone and assume that voters are going to make a different
3: decision. One reason is because Trump appears to be getting more popular, at least among Republicans. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds that after the federal indictment, Trump has only strengthened his hold on Republican voters. More than three out of five of those voters now say Trump is their first choice in the primaries. It's unwavering. And if you attack Donald Trump, you run the risk of alienating that base you yourself would need to not just win the nomination, but win the White House. Hogan Gidley is a former White House spokesman who still speaks regularly with Trump. He warns other candidates against trying to take advantage of the moment and attack Trump when he could be vulnerable. No one's a better counterpuncher than Donald Trump. And if you come at him, we have seen this time and time again that he will destroy you. All of this is why Republican hopefuls are trying to be careful. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Trump's closest rival, came to his defense. And a day after calling Trump reckless, Haley backpedaled. She went on conservative radio and said she would be inclined to pardon Trump if he's convicted.
2: You know, when you look at a pardon, the issue is less about guilt and more about what's good for the country.
6: And I think it would be terrible for the country to have a former president in prison for years because of a documents case.
3: Conant says they're running out of time to distinguish themselves. They need to show why they're a better candidate than Trump.
0: The truth is, sure, if you attack Trump, he's going to attack you back. But if you also show momentum, he's going to attack you.
3: Either way, he says, the only way to win is to take on Trump. Franco Ordonez, NPR News.
1: Parents are constantly being told they have to limit how much junk food their kids can eat or how long they allow their children to watch cartoons. And I will say for a lot of moms and dads, uh, yours here included, that can feel impossible. Neuroscientists say they know why it's such a struggle. For our series called Living Better, NPR's Michaeline Duclef found out what's happening in a kid's brain that drives this overconsumption.
5: Whether it's spending hours scrolling on social media or eating copious amounts of sugary junk food, these activities tap into ancient neural circuits and cause a surge in a molecule inside a child's brain called dopamine. And Noelle Samaha is a neuroscientist at the University of Montreal. She says these circuits and dopamine are critical to keeping your child alive.
7: These mechanisms evolved in our brain to draw us to things that are essential to our our survival, you know, water, safety, sex, food.
5: In other words, there's something in the sugary foods and the flickering screens that releases dopamine and tricks the brain into thinking they're essential. This molecule, she says, has gotten a lot of attention recently, but there's a big misconception about it.
7: In popular media, there's this idea that dopamine equates pleasure
5: that these bursts of dopamine make you love whatever you're doing. Journalists have even called dopamine the molecule of happiness. But Samaha says,
7: There's actually little convincing data in science that that's what dopamine does, and there's in fact a lot of data to refute the idea that dopamine is mediating pleasure.
5: Instead, research now shows that dopamine generates another emotion, desire. Dopamine makes you want things. Whatever is triggering a big spike in dopamine pulls your attention to it.
7: Your brain tells you something important is happening. So you should stay here, stay close to this thing because it's important to you. That's what dopamine does.
5: And here's the surprising part. Whatever dopamine makes you want, you might not actually like it, especially over time. In fact, studies show that people can end up not liking, even hating the activity they're doing. If you talk
7: to people who spend a lot of time shopping online or going through social media, they don't necessarily feel good after doing it. There's a lot of evidence that it's quite the opposite.
5: So let's look at what this means for kids. My daughter is seven, and she was getting in the habit of watching cartoons every night. And while her eyes fixate on the technicolor images, dopamine bursts in her brain, not once, but repeatedly. And that keeps her wanting to watch. Then I come in and say, time's up, time to go to bed, and take the screen away from her abruptly. But the dopamine doesn't go away immediately.
7: The dopamine levels are still high, and what does dopamine do? Dopamine tells you that something important is happening, and there's a need somewhere that you have to Mm. answer.
5: In other words, I'm ripping this important thing away from my daughter that she may feel is critical to her survival. Semaha says this can be incredibly frustrating for a kid, even enraging. And so she fights me.
7: It's not you versus your child. It is you versus a hijacked neural pathway. It is the dopamine you're fighting. And it's not a fair
5: fight. That's Emily Cherkin. She was a middle school teacher for over a decade and now is a screen consultant. She says this can be hard for even adults to handle. So she tells parents, wait as long as possible before bringing new devices, new apps, new ways of watching videos, even new types of junk food, into your home.
7: I talked to hundreds of parents and they, not one, has ever said to me, I wish I gave my kid a phone earlier or I wish I'd given them social media access at a younger age.
5: Never. And for the activities that kids are already entangled with, Dr. Anna Limke is a psychiatrist at Stanford University. She says parents can figure out if the activity or snacking is healthy and unlikely to become a problem. That's true when... The activities that we feel good doing it, and then afterwards we feel even better. That's really the key. That means we're getting a healthy source of dopamine. But the things that make you feel worse afterwards, those are concerning. Limke says parents should be very careful with those activities and foods. We need to limit quantity and frequency of use. So how on earth do parents do that? Limke says... It's tough at first, kids get cranky, but there are a few things you can do to make it easier. For starters, create microenvironments places in the home and times during the day where the child cannot see or access the device or food. For example, my family stopped bringing screens in the car. We removed them from all but one room in the house and we started camping once a month, no screens. When we know we can't go on, the craving goes away. And for sugary foods, we enjoy them at parties or ice cream parlors. And if my daughter does want a treat at home, she bakes it. Finally, try a habit makeover. Instead of cutting out an activity, look for a version that's more purposeful.
2: We're creatures of habit in a really fundamental way. So we cannot get rid of all of our habits. We can just seek to build habits that are a little bit, you know, healthier than other habits.
5: That's Ginia Kotorovitsky. She's a neurobiologist at Northwestern University. She has two tween boys and she encourages them to play this adventure video game that requires many cognitive skills.
2: Advanced social
5: and language skills.
2: Somehow, you know, I don't feel the same way about them playing that
5: game. I tried this strategy with my daughter. We switched the cartoons for a language learning game, and guess what happened? After two weeks, she lost interest in that program and the screen completely. Michaeline Dukleff, NPR News.
1: trillion, that's about the amount of credit card debt that U.S. consumers owe at the moment. And with interest rates so high right now, missing those credit card payments is getting extremely expensive. Making sense of this debt and a few tips to manage it. That conversation tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition. Tune in, and if you aren't by a radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR
4: News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Moonbox Productions, presenting the Boston New Works Festival, June 22nd through 25th, a weekend-long festival celebrating new original plays by local playwrights at the Calderwood Pavilion and the Boston Center for the Arts. Tickets at bostontheaterscene.org.
6: WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required to win a prize. Employees and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org.
8: WBUR supporters include Zoo New England, Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, ZooNewEngland.org. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more.
2: ComplexStories.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden kicked off his re-election campaign in Philadelphia, where he spoke after getting endorsements from top labor unions, including the AFL-CIO and the American Federation of Teachers. Biden touted his administration's work on climate and infrastructure. Voting rights advocates are asking a federal court to block new restrictions affecting voters with disabilities in Mississippi. The law, set to go into effect on July 1st, creates new limits on who can help someone return a mail ballot. And the European Union is slamming Russia's plan to hold what it calls elections in the four Ukrainian regions it occupies. The EU says this is a violation of international law. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com CARE and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
1: This weekend, as we head into Father's Day, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a dad. My dad, we call him Abu, was an immigrant. He believed his duty was to make sure his kids didn't worry about money or food. And growing up, we never did. So thank you, Dad. He did not know how to change a diaper or cook dinner. Well, I should say he tried that once or twice, but it wasn't very appetizing. He worked really hard, though. I mean, he had this work ethic kind of like no one I have ever seen. And I learned a lot about how to work hard from him. Now I'm a mom. And on this Father's Day, I'll be in the office. Yeah, I will say, didn't plan that one too well. Uh, My husband will be home trying to handle a two-year-old and a four-year-old. My kids often say their dad is their best friend. When they cry, the first person they reach for, their dad. When they want to play soccer, their dad. When they want to build some crazy Lego contraption, it's their dad. Given the crazy, unpredictable life of a journalist, most days, he drops the kids off to school and he picks them up. I owe a lot in different ways to both of these men, my dad and my husband. Two men who have shown me that there is no one universal way to be a father. There are so many different ways to be a dad. And so we wanted to talk to fathers from different walks of life. Like Caden Coleman. We reached him right before nap time with his daughter, Journey.
9: Okay, Okay. go get a popsicle. Go ahead and take it. You have your iPad, you have your TV, you have all your lovely toys, all your books. Here you go. You're welcome.
1: Coleman is one of the dads we're hearing from this week ahead of Father's Day. He has two daughters. Journey is going on three.
9: But she is basically going on 30.
1: And Azalea is nine.
9: The biggest thing for me with my kids was always to make sure that they were built for tough because of the world that we live in. Coleman
1: is trans. He uses social media to talk about his life as a trans father, especially his experiences with pregnancy
9: especially for someone like me who's also Black, also low income, things of that nature. Especially 10 years ago, people weren't interested in learning about transmasculine people navigating pregnancy. So I had to do a lot of advocating for myself and I experienced a lot of pushback and discrimination within the medical system based off of preconceived ideas of what a pregnant person is supposed to look like. Fast forward six years with my second child, I thought that it would be different, and it really wasn't. I still had to deal with people telling me that I didn't belong in certain spaces. I had to convince a lot of people that I was pregnant and that I wasn't just some strange man trying to infiltrate the OBGYN's office. I got offered abortions an astronomical amount of times. One of the biggest things that people get wrong is that we hate our bodies. And thusly, anything feminine remotely is something that we will reject. And that's um, included but not limited to pregnancy. Those of us who identify more on the masculine spectrum, just because we identify as such does not take away our desire to have kids. And if we have the body parts to do so, why not? And the other thing is that a lot of people think that because we gave birth that we suddenly become mothers. And so people are always shocked when they hear my child calling me daddy, my children calling me daddy, and they're worried that our kids are going to be confused in some way, shape, or form. And that's just simply not true. Being a trans dad means I was assigned female at birth, and I was essentially raised to ping, ping adhere to societal standards of what a girl is supposed to be, how a girl is supposed to act. I think that because of that upbringing for myself, I got to get the insight into how women are perceived by society. I also just have certain experiences. Like, I know how to do hair. I know, you know, I'll know how to navigate when the menstrual cycles start and the body start changing. I know how to prepare them for what society is going to be expecting of them and teach them that they have autonomy over themselves. I'm just here to provide a safe space for them to grow and flourish into amazing adults who know what healthy, genuine love feels like and acceptance so that they know to be able to project that out into the world and hopefully be some sort of shining light to others. I feel like as a dad, my job is to be an example of that for them.
1: Jorge Mata's story starts in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, in the 1990s. Mata and his wife were living and working as doctors there until something terrible happened.
10: Part of the decision to come to the United States and move from Juarez was that we lost a couple of friends. They were doctors, too. In Mexico, you can have your office as a doctor, and next to that, you can have a pharmacy. Somebody came and robbed the pharmacy, but they killed my my friends. After that, we say, you know what, like, it's not safe. violence, and the crime was the reason for us to move to the United States. When I moved with my two children, they were one year and a half, and my daughter was three years old. I didn't understand any English. Then I felt like, oh my God, what am I going to do with two children, my wife, no home, no car. It was scary at that moment to think how we are going to survive here. For me, moving to the United States, it wasn't a sacrifice. I knew that I was losing control of my life, but it was the necessary move to have my family safe. My daughter, Susel, I remember taking her for the first time to a park here in the United States, and she went to try to play with children. And she noticed that they were speaking English, and she didn't understand. Then the face of my daughter, just like looking at them and not being able to understand and coming back to us to sit down there and be quiet. And I say, what happens to Sel? I say, I don't know what they are talking about. And I'm not going to be able to play with them. Then I have to explain, you know, it's, it's going to be like really fast for you to get the language. My first job was at the Outback State House. They say, What do you do? And I say, I don't do anything because it's a new job for me. I didn't mention I'm a doctor from Mexico, no. But I said, You know what? I like to cook, and that's the only thing. Okay, they say, Then you're going to start as a dishwasher. Then I start moving on the positions there to do salads and then to do fried things. And then in eight months, I was doing almost all the positions in the kitchen. When I'm cooking, my children, they know that I'm in the kitchen because first of all, they start listening to mariachi music in the kitchen and they say, okay, that is cooking. We have special meals for each one of them. My son likes to eat carne en su jugo. My daughter likes pozole. And my wife, we like to do carne asada and ceviche. What I most miss from Mexico was the friends at the level of college. And let me tell you, now I have two friends here that are my children and they have college degrees. We talk about everything. We go to museums, we talk about art, we talk about music, we talk about the medical field, philosophy. They are so interesting, so intelligent, that it's it's amazing for me to see how they transform from the babies that we brought here to two really interesting human beings, adults that are doing well in their lives.
1: Now, Mata is practicing medicine again as a physician's assistant in California. Dwayne Jolly is an army dad. His military service often took him far away from his three children.
11: And while we were taking fire, I remember thinking, please, God, don't, you know, (laughs) sorry, don't let me get shot in the back. You know, that's really what really went through my mind at that time was, you know, my kids, you know. I'm a retired sergeant major from psychological operations. I deployed to Afghanistan for three years and I spent one year in Iraq and about two years in Qatar.
1: His wife, Patrice, is still active duty Army. They have a 26-year-old daughter, a 21-year-old son, and a 12-year-old daughter. Sergeant Major Jolly spoke to NPR while he was on a rare romantic getaway with his wife in Hawaii.
11: Oftentimes, just you know, as a married couple, we don't get a chance to get away for ourselves. So. We're down here in uh, Kauai and uh, I'm sitting on the porch looking at the ocean and listening to the waves crashing in. I'd say the my two oldest kids really caught the worst of it as far as missing out on things. One of the worst parts was uh, my oldest daughter at the time when I left she was I think she was 9. And so she was still a little girl, you know, pigtails and such. And then uh, by the time I came back, she'd hit puberty, and that was a bit rough, you know, to leave your little girl and come back, and you know she's becoming a young woman. I feel like I missed that transition period. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's definitely a difference in the attention that my youngest gets. And uh, I will say that when I would leave, it certainly seemed to affect my daughter more than it affected my son. And you could see uh, a correlation of my daughter's behavior, or even in her grades, you could spot when her dad was gone. You know, her grades would dip down. And then when I came home, you know, her grades would come back up, her behavior would come back up, and. And then, yeah, with my son, he never really finished any kind of sport. So, for instance, I would start soccer with him, but then I'd deploy and he'd quit. And then, you know, I'd come back and we'd start baseball, and, but then I'd deploy and he'd quit. I would say that my son's the only one who's even made the comment that, you know, he's not sure about the military because we were gone so much and that he doesn't want that for his family. You know, my older ones know now, of course, what I did. But even, you know, my 12-year-old, luckily for her, she's, you know, had her dad at home more. Now that I'm retired, she doesn't have to worry about me going to combat anymore. I've promised her I'll never miss another one of her birthdays. You know, I I will always be home no matter what I'm doing for her birthday. The sacrifices isn't just what the soldier or sailor, marine makes or airmen, it's also the family their daddy their mommy is not there for a year you know they're sacrificing their relationship with their parent they're sacrificing their time not just the soldier not just the sailor but the kids as well even though it does take a toll on the family I think it's important to serve your country serving your country is a noble effort and I think that the sacrifices that we made were worth it
1: That was Dwayne Jolly, a dad who's now retired from active military service. Before that, we heard from Kaden Coleman and Jorge Mata. We want to thank them all for sharing their stories about fatherhood with us. And you know, here in all these stories, I realize that maybe it's not that dads have changed so much over the decades, but that we have changed. You know, our cultural concept of fatherhood has changed. And I think there's something really beautiful in realizing that what it means to be a quote, good dad in America is not identical for everyone in every family. Maybe fundamentally, it's just about love, sharing that with your children and trying to do the best that you can. So happy Father's Day to all you dads out there, especially if you're listening to my dad and my husband. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Everyone has a gender, and we express it all the time. But if you're an adult starting to think about your gender in a more expansive way, NPR's Life Kit has some tips on where to begin. Kyle Norris has more.
12: There's no one-size-fits-all to exploring your gender or identity. And it's never too late to be yourself. Amara Jones is a journalist. She says one place you can start is by remembering who you were as a child. Like that child who never got to be themselves is still very much in there, and once you reconnect with them, that voice, it will actually guide you through the adult world for the things that feel right. Jones was captivated by Wonder Woman when she was a kid. So as an adult, she spent time asking herself, why was I drawn to Wonder Woman, and what does that mean for me now? You can also explore what artist Alok Vath Menon, who goes by Alok, calls small acts of permission. For example, Alok remembers when they were not yet comfortable wearing a full dress outside.
13: So what I do is in the privacy of my own room, I'd put on lipstick and then I'd look in the mirror and that would be sensational. I was like, I can't believe I'm someone who is putting on lipstick. This is so much for me. And so I'd stay there for a week or two and then on top of the lipstick, I'd wear a blouse that I wanted to wear.
12: They did all of this for an audience
13: of one at first. And they say, you get to take your time. It's just really about assessing your comfort level and then slowly, gently dancing with it and allowing yourself to be expansive and coming back to yourself.
12: Alok says, think of this journey as a return to yourself, not a betrayal of yourself.
13: There's been a multi-century PR campaign that tells us That if we express ourselves and cultivate a life around authenticity, then we will suffer. So it's better to remain silent and to fit into other people's ideas of who we should be.
12: Alok wants to reframe this myth and instead says, the more we're able to be our true selves, the more we're able to show up for both ourselves and everyone else in our lives. So you might find that not everyone in your life is able to show up for you at this time. But you still need to find support. People who love you for the you you are and the you you are becoming. Matt Rice transitioned 30 years ago in San Francisco. At that time, many of his friends were lesbians, and most of them did not support his transition. But the people who did support him were a group of gay men at the bar where he worked, the Lone Star Saloon. And these men were part of the bear community. Think larger and hairier dudes who enjoy wearing leather.
6: I once explained to someone, it was like having 1,500 grandmothers who would come up to you every week and be like, oh my God, you look so cute. Look, your facial hair is coming in. Oh my gosh. And it was absolutely pure, true love and support of me. You
12: can also find support by reading stories about what Elok calls your transestors in LGBTQ history books, because there are a lot of them and you're in good company. You can also join support groups in person or online. And you can always ask people in your life if they know any trans folks who might be down to chat with you, so that you can see more examples of what exploring your identity might look like down the road. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Norris.
1: For more tips from LifeKit, go to npr.org slash LifeKit. This is
6: All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Coming to City Space on Thursday, June 22nd, Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford for a live taping of their hit podcast, Vibe Check. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events.
4: WBUR supporters include Native Plant Trust, committed to conserving and promoting New England's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. More at nativeplanttrust.org. The Lyric Stage, with Rooted, an offbeat comedy where two sisters and a treehouse accidentally start a cult. Through June 25th, lyricstage.com. And BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod bu.edu slash ssw.
2: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to China today for some high-stakes diplomacy as he tries to open up better lines of communication to avoid misunderstandings. Pennsylvania's governor says the part of I-95 that collapsed over Philadelphia last weekend will be open again in two weeks. Josh Shapiro says they'll also start work on a permanent replacement for the section brought down by a gasoline tanker truck that caught fire underneath the roadway. President Biden toured the area today with Shapiro. And a heat wave is gripping much of the southern U.S. The National Weather Service issued excessive heat warnings for the region through tonight. Cities from Houston to New Orleans have opened cooling centers. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm
1: Asma Khalid. A lot of voters still believe this false notion out there, that the 2020 election was stolen. In large part, they believe this because of a woman named Cleta Mitchell. And if you don't recognize the name, Mitchell is an election attorney who was a central player in former President Donald Trump's effort to overturn the last presidential election. She was on that infamous phone call when Trump pressured Georgia election officials about the oh state's God. results.
5: But the people of Georgia and the people of America have a right to know the answers. Now,
1: Mitchell hosts a podcast about voting.
6: Hello. Welcome to this episode of Who's Counting with Cleta Mitchell.
1: And the fringe conspiracies on her show are helping to push Republicans to abandon one of the best tools out there to fight voter fraud. NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks, along with our investigations team, has been tracing a year-long pressure campaign to sabotage a bipartisan voting success story.
14: On our podcast, Who's Counting?, Cleta Mitchell is talking about the Electronic Registration Information Center, better known as ERIC.
6: ERIC is a very insidious organization.
14: and This is weird. Only nerds who write about elections like me and nerds who run elections think about ERIC. Kathy Buchvar used to oversee voting in Pennsylvania as the Secretary of the Commonwealth. Was this the thing that was kind of in the conversation at all when you were secretary of state?
6: Eric specifically? Yeah. No, I honestly, nobody knew what Eric was.
14: Eric is a voluntary partnership. It allows states to share information about their voters. It enables the people who run elections to know when their voters move or die. It's also the only way states have to flag if someone votes in more than one state, which is illegal. For a while, everyone loved it. Well, almost everyone. Cleta Mitchell has spent the past year working to dismantle Eric.
6: We need people to tell their legislatures and tell their state election offices to stop sending the data, to just withdraw from Eric.
14: Now, election deniers have been trying to change every part of how America votes. They want to get rid of voting by mail, voting early, they want to move back to hand counting ballots, even though it's less accurate. But the reason the attack on ERIC matters even more is because it's working.
4: Iowa's Secretary of State is recommending the state leave an organization it once praised.
5: Florida and two other states are pulling out of what's called the Electronic Registration Information Center.
14: After a decade of uneventful collaboration, ERIC is teetering on the brink of collapse. At its height, ERIC had 32 members, now eight states and counting have pulled out, all Republican. Our investigation shows a conspiracy theory that started on a far-right website is now driving the political party bent on catching voter fraud to destroy one of the only tools states have to catch it. It helps to know a little bit more about how ERIC works and how it started. 15 years ago, a man named David Becker was working at the Pew Charitable Trusts. His team got a bunch of voting people together and just asked them, what can we do to make elections better? Every single election official we asked uh, back in 2008 said voter registration. The federal government had begun requiring states to keep statewide voter lists, but it felt impossible to keep them up to date. Our society is highly mobile. About one-third of all Americans move within any given four-year period. And millions of people die every year, too. All that makes planning where people should vote or how to get information to them really hard, because the addresses voting officials have on file are often wrong. For voters, that can mean longer lines and even mail ballots getting sent to the wrong places. Eric solved two problems for election officials. First, it pulls data from a bunch of different sources, like state DMVs and the Postal Service. Second, it sifts through that data and spits out reports that election officials can use to keep their voting rolls up to date. It allows states to tell with almost certainty which voters are which. Whether John Doe in one state and John Doe in another state are the same John Doe. And they can tell the state with the older record that John Doe has moved away and the state with the new record that you've got a new voter and you should reach out to them, make sure they know they can get registered to vote. The system helped update voter rolls which attracted Republicans who have long prioritized cleaning up America's voting lists. But it also required states to reach out to eligible voters who weren't registered yet, which appealed to Democrats. And states also use it to prosecute the small amount of fraud that does happen every federal election. You know, the good news is that kind of crime is rare,
0: but we take it seriously.
14: This is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. I talked with him about Eric for a while in February.
0: I mean, the little secret is that maybe more than 10 years ago, if somebody voted in Ohio and Florida and Arizona and Texas, you would have never known. There was no way to catch that unless they went out and bragged about it. And so with Eric, we can compare our voter rolls to those states. So Eric was considered a success and growing
14: until January of last year. The first crack in ERIC surfaced with a press release in Louisiana. On January 27, 2022, the Republican Secretary of State, Kyle Ardwin, announced that Louisiana was putting its membership in ERIC on pause, citing concerns raised by, quote, citizens, government watchdog organizations, and media reports. That announcement shocked the voting world. Ardwin declined to be interviewed, but understanding why he made his decision helps to make sense of this whole Eric story. Remember his reference to media reports? Well, roughly a week before Louisiana's announcement, a prominent far-right website called The Gateway Pundit published the first of a series of articles about Eric. The website's founder, Jim Hoft, summarized the key points in an interview with Steve Bannon.
3: It was meant to be a voter cleanup organization. And what it is, is actually just a membership organization for the blue states, the left-wing organization, and and what they do is just register people.
14: NPR's investigations team analyzed hundreds of thousands of social media posts and found that the first Gateway Pundit article was the moment when far-right interest in Eric really took off. But the bigger question is still, why is a guy like Kyle Ardwin, who's worked in elections for more than a decade, making policy decisions based on articles in the Gateway Pundit. And to try to find that answer, we head to a town hall event in Houma, Louisiana.
6: It is my honor to welcome each of you here.
14: Arduin said little publicly about his Eric decision last January, but our investigation found he did bring the announcement to perhaps the only constituents at that time who would even care. We the people... The Bayou chapter.
4: I've been communicating with individuals from We the People from all across the state on a regular basis. It is phenomenal to have citizen activists.
14: The group is one of several chapters in the state and one of hundreds of grassroots organizations across the country, motivated by Trump's voting conspiracy theories that have popped up since 2020. They're part of a new election denial blueprint that helps propel fringe ideas into government action. When Arduin announced his decision to withdraw from Eric, the room cheered.
4: This week, I sent a letter to the election registration information into suspending Louisiana's participation
10: in that program. Yes.
14: Arduin was gearing up to run for re-election this year, and Ohio's Frank LaRose noted that after the Gateway Pundit article, Eric had become a key topic in Republican primaries, where candidates cater to the diehard members of the party.
0: You could see where somebody who's out there trying to prove their conservative bona fides in a primary, which is what you do, would read this article and say, okay, that thing is bad. Let's get our state out of it. But ho- hopefully over time, the noise about this starts to die down and other states look to get back into it. Remember that last thing LaRose just
14: said. We'll come back to it. After Louisiana pulled out, the second domino to fall, was Alabama.
11: Saw what happened in
3: 2020 around the country and how disturbing that was.
14: This is Wes Allen at a campaign event in his race for secretary of state of Alabama. Early in his primary run last year, he promised that the state would pull out of Eric on his first day in office if he won. That promise came a week and a half after the Gateway Pundit article, for those keeping track at home.
3: We started hearing it on the campaign trail too.
14: When I would travel and these voters would be at these particular meetings that I would go to, this subject matter came up. But when we got into the actual problems with Eric, Alan told me it wasn't really about that. One issue that keeps coming up is this alleged connection to George Soros. The liberal billionaire is at the center of a lot of false right-wing and anti-Semitic conspiracies. The initial Gateway Pundit article calls Eric Soros-funded in its headline. And when Allen made his announcement, he said, quote, Soros can take his minions and his database and troll someone else because Alabamians are going to be off-limits permanently. But when I asked him about that accusation, he backed
3: off it. I mean, it's maintained now by the states, but it really doesn't matter in my mind um, who funded Eric. You know, we're still not going to participate in it. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a leftist group or right group, whoever. We just feel. And, you know, I heard loud and clear on the campaign trail that the people of
14: Alabama want their data protected. Just to be clear, the Soros-funded Open Society Foundations has given money to Pew Charitable Trusts, which helped develop Eric. But there's no evidence that Soros has ever had any involvement with Eric. The data security concern Allen mentioned comes up a lot too. But Eric encrypts all the sensitive data it gets from states, like dates of birth and the last four digits of social security numbers before it even analyzes them. Something that became more and more clear as I talked to Wes Allen, was that this was a political decision. So Allen was out, and for a while, it looked like the bleeding might stop with those two ruby red states. Louisiana and Alabama. But under the radar, a powerful pressure campaign was still building, which is where Cleta Mitchell comes in. She's the Republican lawyer trying to take down Eric. Mitchell declined to be interviewed for this story, but her podcast has become a hub of anti-Eric messaging. Since 2020, she's also built a network of local election integrity groups. And our investigation found that these sort of groups mobilized to distribute talking points on ERIC to state lawmakers and election officials across the country. Mitchell has also met with red state officials on ERIC, including Florida's secretary of state.
6: It's a dear friend and a real friend of election integrity. And that is Cord Byrd.
14: Even before he was secretary, Mitchell said Byrd joined her weekly election integrity calls.
6: You've had such a great uh, open open door and willing to listen, and you are very much appreciated.
14: Byrd declined an NPR request for an interview. But this spring, he announced the state was pulling out of ERIC, along with Missouri and West Virginia. The state cited data privacy and partisanship issues with the organization. But they all joined voluntarily years ago and didn't voice any issues until the far right started targeting it. Shortly after, more red states dropped out too. Virginia, which was a founding member and joined under a Republican governor, Iowa and Ohio.
0: But I can tell you that it is one of the best fraud-fighting tools that we have. It's a tool that uh, has provided great benefit for us and we're gonna continue to use it.
14: That's Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, also in February. You've already heard him praising Eric a lot in this story. So what changed? He told me Eric was dismissing the concerns of Republican states. But he was adamant the misinformation campaign did not influence his decision making.
0: Wild ideas about conspiracies of, you know, data leaking out the back door and secret funding sources and and all that kind of stuff. I've rejected all of that. And what we've said all along is that this organization
14: needs to be more accountable. It's worth noting that Ohio was an Eric member for six years and these concerns didn't come up. LaRose is also widely expected to make a run for U.S. Senate. He's not the only Republican who satisfied the base by pulling out of Eric and is now eyeing a promotion. In Florida, Governor DeSantis, who appointed Cord Byrd, is running in the Republican presidential primary. The secretaries of state in both West Virginia and Missouri, Mac Warner and Jay Ashcroft, have both announced runs for governor. The day Missouri pulled out, The Gateway Pundit reported that Ashcroft told them before telling the public. For the record, Eric is still standing, though with less shared data and higher costs for remaining members. The partnership still has more than two dozen member states, including a few Republican states, like Georgia. Its Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger, told me that this mass exodus will mostly be felt in the places that left.
6: It actually hurts that state more than it hurts us. So they just basically indirectly said we're gonna have dirtier voter rolls over there.
14: Brianna Lennon is a Democrat who runs elections for Missouri's Boone County. And she said that will certainly be the case where she is. Her office has relied on Eric Reports for information on voters who changed addresses and voters who died in other states. Now, they'll be waiting for returned mail.
5: The little yellow sticker that says this person is now living in Georgia or something like that. That's what we'll have to go back to using.
14: As she looks ahead to 2024, Lennon says she's worried about the accuracy of her voting lists for that election. But she's just as worried about the power of the election denial movement that targeted Eric.
7: I'm sure there are going to be ripples
5: that come from this particular move. And I'm not exactly sure what the end will be. I don't think that this is the I don't think this is an isolated thing.
14: And one final note. Remember Louisiana's Kyle Arduin, the first official to pull out of Eric? As we finished reporting this story, he announced he was no longer running for re-election. At a voting event this spring, he said reasoning